Dear Heavenly Father, you've heard us pray and thank you in many ways, Father, for the many things you've done this weekend and in the lives of each person here. And we have new requests and you've heard those as well. We lay all these things at your feet, for you have told us to do so. And we know that not in every case, Father, will our hope and our desires line up with yours, but that's only because you have a better plan. That's because what we want isn't as good as what you want. And therefore, Father, we trust in you to answer each and every need in the best way. And we know that as we look at your word, we learn more about who you are and who we are. And the more we learn, Father, the more we want to be like you. And we pray that you would give us that heart as we study Third John tonight, knowing you wrote it for the ages, for those who would know it in his day and in our day. And so we look forward to hearing from you as we study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, this is our second week of that two-week run I mentioned last time in which we're going to study through the shortest books of the Bible. Tonight we study the shortest book in the entire Bible, which is why I'm going to take three and a half hours. <laughs> last week we studied Second John, and I hope you agree you found a lot more in that little book than you might have expected to find in such a short work. And that's not a surprise when you get down to it, because Scripture is the Word of God. Whether it's 25 chapters or 25 verses, it's the Word of God. And it holds more than we can possibly offer in all the wisdom men have ever written. Third John, as I said, is even shorter, but it offers its own set of important lessons. But unlike Second John, Third John is a much more personal letter. It's much more like First and Second Timothy, if you wanted to draw a comparison, particularly like Second Timothy. It's really written to one person, but with an understanding that more would read it. John probably wrote this letter at about the same time that he wrote the other letters of the New Testament and probably also the book of Revelation within about a five-year span at the end of the first century. This letter shares some similarities with First and Second John, though it also stands apart in some ways. So let me review a little bit of its context and what makes it distinctive. The letter, as I mentioned already, is very short. It's only 15 verses. So it's short and it's to the point. In fact, it's the only New Testament letter that has no mention of Jesus Christ in it, at least not by name. John's letter focuses on three commendations. So if you're taking notes and want to understand what we cover tonight, you can do that through an outline that has three major points. These are commendations that he writes concerning a man called Gaius, who is the uh, audience for this letter. So he's commending Gaius on three points. First, his obedience and how his obedience is ministry. Secondly, how his hospitality is ministry. And thirdly, his generosity or his financial sacrifice is ministry. And he's commended on all three points. Then John highlights the behavior of another individual who contrasts with Gaius, who is not at all like Gaius. And in that difference, John is teaching a point of contrast. So he'll do the three commendations and then a contrast at the end. So the major points of the letter are those three commendations and a contrast. Let's start with verse 1. Third John 1. John begins, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Just like we remember from Second John, there's a bit of a mystery around John's audience here. In Second John, it was that lady who we now know is not a person at all, but really just a metaphor for the church. In this case, you have Gaius. That's a common Greek name. 
So although there are a handful of men with the same name mentioned in other places of the New Testament scripture, it's doubtful that any of them are the same guy. It's just such a common name. But we notice that John continues to refer to himself here as an elder. So though we don't know any more about Gaius than what we have in the letter, we still note that John himself is hiding his own identity here. So it seems more than likely a means of protecting himself from persecution. That was the reason why in Second John he used lady in place of the name of the church. So we're going to see as he ends the letter in this case, he'll do it in a way very similar to the way he did it in Second John. That would reinforce, at least for me, that this is about keeping something secret, keeping a little bit of discretion. Once again, he begins his letter, like he did in the last letter we studied, expressing love in truth. And you remember that expression, we looked at that extensively in our previous week, that love in truth is a unique form of love, one unique to the body of Christ. It describes supernatural love, a love that unites all believers by the power of the Spirit within us. And that's why in Scripture the command to love one another does not come without the power to obey it. Remember I mentioned last time that in the body of Christ it is literally possible not to like someone but to love them at the same time. Because we love them in truth. We love them in the uniting power of the Spirit. Even if at a human level there's all kinds of things about that person we're not particularly fond of. For whatever reason. Love in the true biblical sense, is not based on a quid pro quo. It's not based on you do for me and I then like you. You make me happy, I'll then make you happy. That's human forms of love. That's not agape love. The biblical form of love is unconditional in that regard. It's not explainable in natural terms. It doesn't relate to something I can put down on a checklist and say this is why I feel kind things for that person. It transcends that stuff. The Bible says that the presence of the Spirit is why we have the ability or the power to love one another. Jesus in John's Gospel says this in John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's not saying, please love one another because if you manage it somehow, you'll be able to show the world that I came and you are mine. No, he's saying that as you love one another, as I give you the power to do it, that will be the mark of the Christian unconditional love it's how we're different from the world because the world loves in human terms and we love in godly terms and that's a distinctive that's a difference the world loves conditionally we love unconditionally the world loves selfishly we love with agape love then john begins the first of those three commendations i told you we're looking for in this letter the ones that he speaks to gaius verse two he says beloved i pray that in all respects you may prosper And be in good health, just as your soul prospers. In verse 2, John says he prays for Gaius, and this prayer is focused on prosperity. And it's such a shame that that word, prosperity, has been hijacked by Satan in recent decades, isn't it? You know, even as I use the word for some of us, we bristle at it. Well, let's put the distorted and the false understanding of prosperity out of our minds for a moment. And let's focus now on what John says, just on what he says here. John says he prays that Gaius would prosper. The word in Greek for prosper, you may know, is a word that literally means a good journey. That all would go well. That's the sense of it. So it's euphemistic in Greek. So it includes a financial sense of well-being, but that's not its major emphasis. The major emphasis is that all of your life would go well, that holistically you would prosper. 
John speaks in those terms to Gaius. He says Gaius' entire life and circumstances would prosper. He mentions physical health. He mentions spiritual well-being. And it's implied also a degree of financial prosperity, at least to some degree, right? To live a life without want. So John says he's been praying for these things for Gaius. He's praying for his physical needs and his spiritual needs. Prospering in both areas of his existence, flesh and in spirit. That's a powerful reminder of what good prayer looks like in terms of focus. When you pray for someone else, you need to pray beyond the flesh. If you can, if it's in your mind, if it can be brought to mind. Our prayer life is more powerful when we seek that kind of balance in our intercession. You've got to actively find that balance because I think our natural thinking goes to the here and now, to the worldly, to the physical, to the earthly. Even when we're doing it in good intentions as Christians, seeking to relieve someone else of suffering or to see a good outcome in their finances or to see another improvement in their life. That's all well and good. We're not saying put that away. What we're saying is what's the balance to that? The balance is that even if I heal the body today, it dies tomorrow. Even if you're prosperous today, you can't take it into heaven. What is the real balance in that? The balance in that is that you then may prosper spiritually as well. Another opportunity to be on this earth another day so that I may use that day for spiritual well-being. I pray for health and strength so that I might serve the Lord in more of that strength. Right? It's, it's got to transfer into spiritual outcomes or it dies here with you. So what do we pray for when we pray for people? We pray in that very way, that we pray that their bodies and their minds and their hearts and their finances and everything else would be of such prosperous nature that it then promotes in them a desire to serve the Lord spiritually and moves them forward. But that's another source of prayer right there. Don't let those things take their mind off of you, Lord. Help them to use that strength to serve you, Lord. It's simply putting the whole package into our prayer so that we intercede across all of that. Many requests will come in one form. Please pray for me for X. We then take that and knowing them and by the spirit, perhaps revealing something to us as well. We take X and move it forward from X to Y to Z. We pray through a line of thought that takes them beyond just their immediate need. Why are we doing that? Because that's a response to the spirit leading us. I'm trusting that as you make those connections, those connections aren't happenstance. They're not luck. They're not chance. They're not forced. They're the Lord working in you to move you where you need to be so that intercession is glorifying him as he plans to do those works. That's the purpose of prayer, right? It brings attention to the works of God by connecting our thoughts and desires to the outcomes we later see God do. It's like advertising to the world about God's intentions in our hearts first and then as we pray corporately to others around us. So it's never wrong to intercede for someone on the needs that they might express, basic needs, earthly needs. That's never wrong. But look beyond them whenever you can. If it's a choice between praying for someone to prosper financially or physically versus praying for them to prosper spiritually, which one would you choose in any case? A soul prospers into eternity. A flesh can only prosper to a certain point. Why has Gaius been on John's mind? Why did John say that he's been praying for him in these ways? Well, that's what John says next in verse 3. He says, For... I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. John begins there with verse three saying for, which means in the Greek literally because in light of what I just said, because he had heard some things about Gaius, he has been led to have Gaius on his mind. And because he's had him on his mind, he's been thankful for his work and been praying for him to continue prospering. 
And apparently, from what we know here, fellow Christians had visited John and come to John telling them of what they knew of Gaius' work. They had testified to Gaius in whatever he was doing, to the fact that Gaius had been walking in the truth, John says. Walking in the truth, we remember from the last letter, means to walk or to live according to the commandments of Christ and his apostles, to the command of God's word. We studied that metaphor, as I mentioned, in in 2 John, and he's drawing on that same concept here. I want you to notice the chain of events, though, in this case. This is very helpful to understand the power of our own walk and its witness, its power to witness. Notice the chain. Gaius chose to live according to what he had been taught. So Gaius is taught, and taught meaning from what Scripture gives. Then he's living according to what he's been taught. Then that lifestyle of living according to what he had been taught leaves an impression on another believer. And then they, in turn, testify to yet another believer of what they have seen in that earlier believer. And then that testimony ultimately led to Gaius receiving public commendation. A public commendation by the last living apostle, a man who was known as the apostle Jesus loved, that commendation was no small matter in the church. There is no human being on earth who could have rendered a stronger, more appealing commendation than John, the last living apostle of Christ. This is something you frame. Gaius took a copy of this letter home and he nailed it up on the wall. This is one you can't replace, and not in terms of earthly significance, right? This letter was read and it was circulated in the church like all letters from the apostles were. When a letter like this came to a church, it would be scripture right from the very beginning. We know that from what we studied this weekend is Peter himself referred to Paul's own writing in his own day as scripture. So imagine the feeling Gaius had when he hears this letter read aloud in a church gathering, praising his name in such glowing terms. The point of John's letter is to commend certain things. And Gaius had the opportunity to hear these things and be encouraged by them, but his fellow believers had a chance to see him lifted up as an example in his behavior, which becomes a teaching opportunity for them. John had the opportunity to do this for Gaius because Gaius lived out his walk and testified in that way. Gaius was walking in the truth. John wanted the church to understand that Gaius was a man who needed to be emulated, to be trusted. Others now knew of his success And they knew that the apostles were approving of this success. I mean, you can see the reinforcement of it very easily. But when you and I choose to learn and apply what we learn and testify by our walk, whether or not we get a letter from an apostle or in any other way, a commendation, if we do not receive commendation in a public way, there will yet still be commendation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.18, For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. We are to walk with the Lord in obedience so that we might establish a good testimony concerning the Lord before other men. And Paul says this plainly again in Philippians. In Philippians 2, 14 through 16, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, 
I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul takes that chain of events all the way to himself on his own judgment day. Our goal, he says, is to walk in truth so as to be blameless and innocent. And this word comes up from time to time in Scripture. Blameless does not mean without sin. It refers to our testimony before men, that in the eyes of other men, they can look at us and find no thing to accuse us of. Now, God can certainly accuse us because our hearts would reveal sin, even if our life and our behavior didn't to all people. But there's still a point there that we can understand, right? Live in such a way that our testimony to the world is we live in blamelessness as far as the world can tell. And Paul says we live in a crooked and perverse generation, so it's ever more important that our life contrasts with that to be a light in the world. If you live like the, the world, you don't have a light in contrast to them. You just look like them. He says, do not be accused by your generation to be sinful, but rather, in comparison, look blameless and innocent. That's our goal. And Paul says the point of that lifestyle is to be a light. The word for light is the word in Greek for shine or visible. The point is to make a contrast, to stand out. But we have to be careful. He didn't say stand out at all costs or in all methods. He didn't say become pious, sanctimonious and pharisaical just so you can stand out. The point is to do it as a statement of truth about God. And that requires that we live according to the truth, he says, according to the word of life. Then Paul goes on one more step and he says that in holding fast to the word, he would then have reason to glory in the day of the Lord. Now, he talks about himself because he wants to make the point that he has worked hard for their sake. Let them then reflect that in glory back upon him. But it stands to reason that if their own behavior has some impact on his day of judgment, then self-evidently it would also have an impact on their own day of judgment, right? And that much we can understand as well. That as we live in testimony to Christ by our lifestyle, we have then at stake a commendation which may come through men, and that's fine if God brings that, but regardless of whether he does or not, it will have an impact on eternity, and we will receive a commendation from Christ. So Gaius's situation demonstrates the relationship on a small scale. His blameless life had become a shining light in some corner of his world, which then led men to see and testify, and that came back onto him through the church's commendation from an apostle. We have the same opportunity on a much larger scale. We live a life of testimony for an eternity of commendation from Christ. Next thing John says about this report is that it caused him to have great joy. Look at verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. I think parents can certainly sympathize with this on a personal level, but we know John's speaking here at spiritual level, not just in terms of parents and children, but it still is a true statement for a parent. John says his greater joy as an apostle was learning that his children were walking in the truth. John spent most of his adult life following Christ, endeavoring to call other men to know and follow Christ as well. And as an apostle, John knew how important obedience was. He would have learned it. He would have seen it. He would have heard Christ talk about it. He would have experienced it. You have to imagine a man of this stature and at this age of his life had become very mature in his walk. And so for him, obedience was not just a consideration. It was an absolute imperative. And so he would write about those things. And he also knew what was on the line for someone who failed in a walk of obedience. 
based on what God had given him in Revelation, just in the very fact of what he knew God had opened his eyes to see, he knew what the consequences were for a failure to obey. And so he wrote letters and he suffered persecution and he lifted up prayers on behalf of his spiritual children. In other words, what he knew changed how he lived and how he thought about the world. And so when you hear him say something like verse four, when I see my children living out their faith, I feel no greater joy than that. He meant it. What John doesn't say, but I think we can safely assume, is that he must have felt great sadness when he watched believers fail to live according to the Lord's commands. If he has this greatest joy in watching people obey, then it stands to reason that when he saw the opposite, he was at the other end of the spectrum. When his friends, his family, his church family didn't obey. He understood the jeopardy they were in. A disobedient believer has a real potential to walk off into some corner that they cannot come back from. A life of disobedience that's so ingrained. And as Hebrews says, there's no second repentance. If you walk away from the Lord as a believer, you may walk so far away, there's no pulling you back. You just remain in that corner. You come through as through fire with nothing to show. And you see the penalty in the sense of loss of reward. That is an ever-present potential for anyone who is determined in their hardened heart to disobey the Lord. So John knew that. And he also understood the eternal loss that came from it. Although I cannot compare to John or to any apostle or to any man of Scripture, I can identify with him in this sense. I can identify as a teacher, and I think any teacher could identify this way, that we hope our students perform well and we're saddened when someone takes the teaching and doesn't use it. They aren't listening to the Bible. They aren't taking what has been communicated and working with it. Because every teacher's greatest desire and joy is to see lives transformed to please the Lord. To receive the truth gladly and then to live according to it. That's John's perspective for the church. And it's the Lord's perspective for all of us. That's John's first commendation. That Gaius' obedience is itself ministry. Our obedience can all by itself be ministry. I love to remind people who say, well, I don't really know what my gift is. I don't feel very competent at anything. I don't really find any way to serve. I want to, but I don't know what to do. Well, the first thing is to be obedient. If you are obedient in a consistent way, blameless in a perverse and crooked generation, you form a testimony and a ministry just in that. And then from that, God can do great things. And if nothing else, you'll have a great reward. So that's first thing he commends. The next section begins, as all these sections do, by the way, with the word beloved. The next section, the second commendation, speaks to a different issue, to hospitality. Verse 5 and 6, he says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So he doesn't use the word hospitality, but it becomes clear enough when you look at it that that's what he's speaking to. He credits Gaius with hospitality to believers, even when he didn't know them, which is the word stranger here. Hospitality in John's day was an especially important characteristic, a very honored tradition. And everyone knew the expectation, and generally speaking, everybody extended it in a way that goes well beyond what we typically do today. And knowing that about the culture, you might ask yourself, well, why is this guy getting commended for doing what culturally everyone was probably going to do, and, or at least most people would probably do? If everyone's expected to show it, then why are you being praised to do it? Well, the answer comes 
from that earlier mention I had of persecution in this day. This is a time of intense and increasing persecution of the church. And because persecution was a real risk for Christians, to open your home to strangers, especially those who were seeking out Christians, was a very dangerous thing to do, very risky thing to do. A man who shows up, you don't know, he says, I've heard you're a Christian, can I stay with you? Well, you just have a moment there to decide how much you're ready to reveal about yourself to a stranger. You're not going to have any opportunity to show hospitality unless you're willing to open up on that question, right? We're told Gaius opened his home. He risked hosting others, people he did not know, showing kindness, showing love to anyone who called themselves a Christian, we can assume. This is a unique privilege for the Christian, to be able to open your home to a fellow believer and show the love of Christ. And I'm not saying hospitality ends at the doorstep of Christianity, you're certainly also potentially doing a work when you show hospitality to someone who's not a believer. But that's just not the point in view right now. The issue right now is our obligation in hospitality to believers. And he is commended for showing the love of Christ through hospitality, and Scripture backs this up. You already probably know the verse I'm thinking of in Hebrews. 13, 1 and 2, he says, Let Love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Hebrews chapter 13 connects love for the brethren with showing hospitality to strangers. And in that way, you see that even the writer of Hebrews was thinking of this in terms of believers, not just in terms of strangers generally. Show the love of the brethren. Let strangers stay in your home. And he says, and you don't know when you're not entertaining an angel. But his point is, within the family of God. And here's Gaius now, again, obeying scripture, by the way, obeying the commandment to show hospitality. And through this, once again, obtaining a good testimony. Notice that John says when these strangers had come back from staying in Gaius's home, what did they bring to John? A good report. Here we go again. Gaius probably had no idea when he let these men in his home that they had any connection to John necessarily. But because he does the right thing, here he gets this commendation from the apostle. I'm sure he would have also and did also receive one from the Lord. And then it says he went a step further in his willingness to host these strangers in faith. It says, John says, send them away in a manner worthy of God. And although it's spoken in the present tense as if John is asking for this, it's also by the context implying that you will do this. I know you well enough to know you will do this. He says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy. You will be well rewarded for having sent them away. That's the kind of person he was. When the time came for these men to leave, apparently, from what John says, Gaius took the extra step of ensuring that they didn't leave empty-handed. He may have given them provisions. He may have given them money. He may have given them clothes or all of the above. But he sent them off with what they needed. Notice John says he sent them away in a manner Worthy of God. How much is somebody worth? Thinking sacrificially about what you give to someone when they have a need or they've stayed in your home and you can see a need. What are they worth? What John says is, in keeping with God's honor, that if the Lord himself had made that same gift, that gift would have reflected well on the Lord's generosity. To be doing so in a manner worthy of God himself. It's a pretty generous supply. And generous in light of what you have is obviously implied. I can't give what I don't have. And it doesn't make sense to expect me to give everything I do have. I just become dependent on somebody else as soon as I do that. But within limits, whatever is reasonable, be generous. 
Gaius showed hospitality at personal risk and at self-sacrifice. And he received a commendation from John and eternal reward to follow. This is the standard the scripture is holding us up to. But are we ready to do this? My wife and I have always insisted wherever we've lived that we have a guest room in our home, a room that's set aside with a bed that we don't use for any other reason so that we can always host guests. But I'm going to be the first to tell you that that wasn't my idea. I have to admit my wife has always been more willing to extend hospitality at times than I have. My personal concern tends to move in the direction of privacy and having a home that's a retreat from the world, which means I don't often open my doors easily to guests, particularly strangers who I don't already know well. So whenever she says she's going to invite some, someone that's down on their luck or someone she's heard from a friend of a friend who needs to come and stay with us or whatever, my first response was usually this, and I'm not making this up. What is our exit strategy? I want to know before they come into my house how long they're going to stay and how do we get them out. But the Lord, in all his wisdom, was good to give me a wife who would maintain a balance in this part of my personality and lead me toward hospitality. And I think I'm much better than I used to be in that regard. I only think about the exit strategy after they've been there two or three days. Traveling missionary who was coming through town and a friend of ours who knew them said, hey, I've got this missionary. They need to stay. Would you like to have him stay at your house? I'm like, no. <laughs> and my wife said, that would be a yes. Like, okay. And it worked out. And he's been coming regularly to my house ever since. No, but seriously, it's easy to nod our heads when we hear John saying, good for you, Gaius, doing this. And we think, yeah, that's really good. I'm glad Gaius did that. Well, what about you? <laughs> we may not have the risk issue that Gaius had because of the day that we live in, although maybe that'll change. But for now, it's still the case that there's the personal sacrifice issue. And I think in our culture today, it actually has turned in a different direction now. John's day, hospitality was the norm. What made this a little extraordinary was the risk that he took and the generosity he showed when the man or the people left. We have now put ourselves in a situation where we close our doors at night, we don't talk to our neighbors, and we don't really want anyone to come up to the door for any reason. And so now the issue is about our privacy and our sanctity in this box we wall ourselves off in at night. We need to be thinking more about how that becomes a more of an open door policy. And we're not talking about just any stranger. I think the context here is clear. It's believers we're talking about primarily. That though we may have an, an additional desire to support unbelievers, that's fine. But we have an obligation to do this for believers. That's God's way of bringing the love of Christ to that person through us. But also, we want to send them away with something if that's needed. We want to be generous with what we have because of what they need. That, that's the personal sacrifice. We sacrifice the flesh to make room for the growth of the spirit. Flesh in all its forms, which includes our possessions. So Gaius took risks, which meant he put the needs of the body ahead of his own body, his flesh. And when you and I are given that opportunity to show hospitality, let's understand that it comes with sacrifice. That's been the biggest thing I've learned. There's no such thing as hospitality without sacrifice. Sacrifice is implied when you extend hospitality to someone. So when I was thinking to myself, well, I can't really extend hospitality to this person because it's really a lot of trouble and I don't really want to go to the effort, then name a time of hospitality when you're not going to feel that way. It doesn't come like that. It's only when we confront our flesh that we step beyond the natural and we do the unexpected, which is love. And John explains why his hospitality was so important in verses 7 and 8. He says in verse 7, 
For they, and now he's speaking of the people that Gaius hosted in his home. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So the men that Gaius hosted in his home were likely traveling preachers of the gospel. And that was very common. Itinerant preachers were very common in this day. They went out, John says, meaning from Gaius' home, went out for the sake of the name. And that's obviously referencing the name of Christ. That's the closest John gets to naming Christ in the letter. Again, maybe for reasons of personal protection. What an honor it was for a man to travel and to greet people in the name. There was no more important task. These men deserved honor for it. They took great risks in doing it. And Gaius gave them that honor and he gave them a moment of support and comfort. And John says that that support was all the more important because those preachers were then, by the generosity of Gaius, they were then able to go out and not accept support from Gentiles. Now, the term Gentile isn't exactly what you think here. The term, as we typically know it, is Jew versus Gentile. But in the way John is applying it here as a Jew speaking to Jews, he's using it in the sense of a pagan worshiper. What John was saying to his Jewish audience was these believing men were able to go out and preach the gospel and do so without resorting to depending on unbelievers to pay their way. These men were able to show God supported their needs, that God did not let them down, that they didn't have to step outside the family of God to do the work God had for them to do. Why didn't they accept support from unbelievers? Because they were committed to living according to the standards that Paul gave in 2 Corinthians, and specifically 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Of what fellowship has light with darkness? And I know we typically use this when we talk about marriage relationships or perhaps even business relationships, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, that's appropriate application. But it's certainly not limited to those things. Paul's talking in a very broad sense. He says, don't be bound together. And then he says, what partnerships have these two things? These men in John's day were determined to go out separating themselves from dependence upon unbelievers. And the point wasn't to diminish an unbeliever. This isn't haughtiness where they're wanting to say, you're not worthy to be with us and we don't want to be unclean or any of that nonsense. It's not like that at all. It's intended to go the opposite direction. It's not trying to diminish unbelievers. It's trying to elevate the Lord. It's saying the Lord has paid for this work. The Lord supports his people. The Lord provides. The Lord cares. And the Lord has given us an opportunity to show that he is working within us. And Gaius gave them an opportunity to show the Lord as strong. Because he was God's instrument to provide for them. I mean, think about the chain of events here. If Gaius hadn't done what he was called to do, God's glory is diminished, at least in the eyes of some. That's a powerful witness. And it's one that I think our Western world has largely jettisoned in the spirit of independence and self-reliance. When we make opportunity to support our own needs using whatever means the world offers, we potentially rob the Lord of receiving glory for how he would provide to meet our needs. And what I mean by that is something very specific. When we deny others the chance to fund our mission work, for example, because we happen to have enough in the bank. Or if we rush to pay for things on credit rather than waiting for the Lord to provide the money. And I'm not against borrowing per se, neither is scripture. But in the leading of the spirit, there are times when he's saying no because we don't have the money. And we override the no by using credit. 
or because we want it now, not next week. And that's a dangerous thing. It's not just flesh at work, but it also robs the Lord of glory for how he might provide when he chooses, how he chooses. There's a testimony given by a man. I won't name him, but as a seminary student, he tells a testimony of how at a time he goes to seminary, he does not have the personal funds to pay for seminary. And he's not working because he's going to seminary. And he made a decision as he begins his seminary studies that he would wait for God to pay for his tuition. He would not tell a single human being of his need for money. Not once, not ever, not anyone. Because he was so confident in God's ability to pay for his seminary education that he wanted God to show himself strong by making it clear that God was the only one who could have brought about that result should it happen. And then he made it all the way through seminary, every bill getting paid, and checks would show up in the mail from people he never heard of and didn't know why they knew him or how they knew him or why they sent him money. Money came from different directions, and he made it all the way through seminary, God paying for it. He had a conviction that he followed through on like that. In various ways, God showed himself strong. His conviction mirrors the men that came out from Gaius' home. They knew all the money comes from God. They knew that whether they got it from a Gentile or whether they got it from a Jew. Just as that seminary student knew that if he asked and a man gave him the money, it would still come from the Lord, yet that's not what he wanted to see God do. In both cases, they left room for God to act on his own in a way that they hadn't manipulated or contrived or driven by their own desire so that he received all the more glory for his faithfulness when that provision showed up. You are no more secure when you have a job than when you don't have a job. You're no less secure when you don't than when you do. You are no more secure when you have money in the bank than when you don't. Those things are independent of God's ability to provide. They're just human ways of assessing security. And they're a very strong trap that lead us to think we're in control of things that we're not in control of. The reason Job's in the Bible is to remind us we're not in control. When he was rich and had everything, he was about to see it all gone. When he was destitute and thought the world had come to an end, he received it all back. That was the attitude of this seminary student. That's the attitude these men had in Gaius' day. Gaius was commended for being willing to be that instrument God could use to make that provision. In our self-sufficient culture, we need to understand the power of becoming vulnerable so that the Lord can show himself strong. John tells Gaius that his hospitality was all the more important because he stepped in to support that need. Then in verse 8, John reinforces Gaius' good deed with a reminder that the church is supposed to support those who sacrifice to teach or preach. John is talking about men who preached the word, who went out in the name, who did so determined to receive their provision from the Lord, and yet God made that provision come through others in the body of Christ. The principle here is that God works through the church to support those who teach. We are all commanded by Scripture to support financially those whom God has sent us to support us spiritually. And obviously, as I deliver this teaching point, I'm conspicuously aware that it may appear self-serving. But if that's how it appears to anyone, the only thing I can say is get over it. I speak these things not for my own sake or for the sake of anyone in particular, but I speak them because they are in the text of Scripture in front of us today. This is not an option. This is not something you decide to do if you feel like it. The Bible makes clear this is a requirement that we are to support those who support us spiritually. John gives positive benefit for doing it here. He says we become fellow workers in the truth, in the truth. We may look upon someone who's teaching us and we may imagine, well, they're doing great work for the Lord. Go for it. Well, if that's so, 
then you can become a part of that great work. You can actually share in the credit of that work, become a fellow worker in that respect, merely by supporting them financially. They might spend hundreds of hours studying the Bible, long nights working on things. They might have to travel the world to teach. They may have to do all of the follow-up work. That comes. All you have to do is write a check and you share in the, in the work of that person. That's a pretty good deal. We're talking about making ministries stronger so they can do that work, letting ministries pay salaries, etc. And it doesn't necessarily have to come to the teacher you listen to on a Sunday or on a Wednesday. It can go to someone you hear on the radio. The point is how God feeds you, you turn and you supply back. Paul uses this great example from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, that I think makes the point best. Three verses, 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So Paul, in referring to the law of Moses, is reminding the church that you support those who minister to you because it yields you a benefit. Think about the analogy. Ox were used to thresh grain. So grain and stalks is laid on the ground. An animal is set on top of the stalks of grain with their hooves on the grain and they're put on a contraption that makes them walk in a circle around this threshing floor and as they tread they knock the grains off of the stubble and and straw and what you're left with then is the seeds well that's hard work who benefits from that work well the farmer the farmer gets a whole bunch of seed which is their income which is their benefit from their farming activities now what does it take for that ox to do his work just a little bit of that seed. You just take a little bit and you just put it in the feedback. But Paul says, would it make sense for the farmer to muzzle that ox to take away his ability to eat? The premise being that, well, I've saved this much grain. I've saved some money by wrapping the mouth of the ox. Well, that works until the ox gets hungry, gets too weak, stops moving, and now no one's got grain. You don't get what you want, and of course, he never had what he wanted. Spiritually speaking, Paul says, is this written about oxen? Is God that concerned about ox? No. He says this is always intended to be a picture to us about how we are to serve those who serve us spiritually. So if people have to spend long hours teaching, preparing and teaching so that we can be blessed spiritually, what makes it possible for them to do that? Income somewhere, somehow. If they can't do that, then we don't get their benefit because they don't have the time to do what they need. You see the point. So we save a little bit, but we lose a lot. The other beauty of this in the way the body of Christ works is that no one person has to do it all. That's the beauty of this. Each person gives what they can to the measure of what they have to give. And then the benefit is cumulatively great for the body, but individually very small self-sacrifice. Well, the problem is if only 2% give, then you have the real problem of not enough available and everyone starts to starve. So as I started this, I'll reinforce as I end this. I know this looks conspicuously self-serving. I hope you understand this is what the Word of God is saying, and I'm simply delivering it in an honest and forthright way. Paul refers to this. John refers to this. So now John has given three commendations, one on obedience, one on hospitality, and one on generosity. Now he turns to calling out two men, one for good, one for evil. John 9 and 10, he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with his wicked words. 
and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. So this is a character study in someone who is the opposite of Gaius, a man named Diotrephes. He's a leading man in the church, apparently. His name means nourished by Zeus. It's a very unusual name. His situation is included here as a bad example. Now, he's talked about Gaius in three specific areas, and he mentions another man now who is the polar opposite in all three. The point is to highlight good and bad so the church knows who to emulate and who not. Gaius must have been a man of relatively little importance in the church. Why? Because Diotrephes is such a high leading man. The goal, I would imagine, for John was to find an opposite in all regards. So he's talking about a humble, quiet man doing his job, a powerful, visible man not doing his job. That's an assumption on my part, but it would seem to fit the contrast. So John apparently wrote to the church in the past, he says, but this leader rejected that letter that John sent and did not accept it, meaning he did not accept it as binding, as authoritative. And apparently, motivated by pride, he doesn't want to compete with this guy. He doesn't want the apostle stepping into his game, into his sandbox. A sinful man living in sin. John lists six offenses. First, he wants to be above everyone. He wishes he was an apostle, I can imagine. Pride is the motivation there. He wanted to lord over the church. It's a simple enough thing to say that every man in ministry, every woman in ministry needs to guard against this kind of a heart. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, right? Second thing he's cited for, he does not accept the apostles' teaching. Naturally, if he had listened to the teaching of the apostles, it would have convicted him greatly on everything he's doing wrong, right? So he doesn't want to hear it. He rejects it, staying with his own desires. Third, he unjustly accused the apostles using wicked words. So rather than being subject to them, he attacks them. He tries to knock them down in the eyes of the people. Fourth, he does not receive Christians, directly opposite of what Gaius does in hospitality. In fact, we can begin to see that this man is that highlight, right? He doesn't obey. He doesn't listen to teaching. He doesn't live out what God has given through the apostles. Now we hear he does not extend hospitality. And then next it says he forbids other Christians from receiving these teachers. So he holds others back from showing love or accommodation. Again, this all fits in the pattern. If he lets anyone else come into the church who teaches, they would teach the right thing and that would undermine his authority. So what you're seeing here is the beginnings of cult behavior. The last piece is he puts out any Christian who contends with him. That is classic cult behavior. So all the teaching is from me. Don't listen to any other teachers. Don't take them in. Don't let them come into your home. And if you violate any of these rules, you're out. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses do. That's what Mormons do. That's why you can't pray with a Jehovah's Witness if they come to your door. They will refuse to let you pray with them. They will not take any material from you. You cannot give them a Bible. In other words, they are taught to stay isolated from your influence, even as they try to influence you. That's cult-like behavior. That's a recipe for a cult. John says he's going to call attention to this man's deeds if and when he comes. And the, the call attention, the word call attention is a single Greek word. And it simply means to remind or to bring to mind. When John comes, I'm going to remind everybody what this man has done. What's interesting to me is that John does not say what we might have imagined Paul would have said as another apostle. When I come, you'll see what kind of power I have. You know, that's the second Corinthians, maybe. Paul was always talking about, we'll see how much power you have. Come on, bring it. And John's saying, I'm just going to remind everybody of what you've done. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't threaten to remove him. 
He doesn't threaten to take him out of power, just to expose him. Perhaps John knew that exposing him would be enough for him to lose the chance to lead anyone, just to be exposed. That's a helpful reminder. You know, there's times to be a Paul, there's times to be a John. That our fight against false leaders and teachers doesn't revolve around their positions, but around the truth. We don't succeed by knocking these men out of the pulpit. We succeed by knocking their ideas out of the minds of the people who follow them. And then they have no pulpit. And then they have no audience. We want to expose the truth, which will naturally diminish them. We don't need to attack them personally. We don't need to forcibly remove them. We simply need to show them to be the men that they really are. Finally, John gives his positive example to reinforce what he says about Gaius and this man that delivered the letter. He says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. John has given the church these commendations in the example of Gaius and then the negative in the example of Diotrephes. And now he says, don't imitate the evil man, imitate the good man. And he's referring back to Gaius and to Diotrephes. The one who does good is of God, which means he represents God's heart, working to please God. Therefore, imitate him. And then he says, on the other hand, the one who does evil has not seen God. Now, that does not have to mean that this man is not a believer, though that that could be true. But that's not automatically what he means. In this context, he's comparing someone who is of God, meaning his life reveals God truly, to a man who is not of God, who is not reflecting God's heart, not showing the truth in his life. And so though it's possible one was a believer and one was not, it is also possible both are believers. And his point to the church is you got two examples in front of you. You know which one you should follow. And then lastly, Demetrius, he's the courier bringing this letter. And so John tells Gaius, this man has a good reputation. This man deserves to be well treated. This man is one of those traveling preachers, perhaps. And in any case, John says Demetrius has a good testimony from three sources. First, the brethren who know him will give a good testimony. Secondly, the truth itself testifies, which means this man is a good handler of the word of God. His own teaching will demonstrate to you who he is in his heart. He divides the word rightly, in other words. And then thirdly, John adds his own approval. I testify. So Gaius has no reason to reject this man when he comes. And I'm sure once the letter was read, Gaius was very glad that he did receive him. For he got to hear all of those commendations about himself. And then finally, John ends the letter similar to the way he ended the last one and no real commentary required. Verses 13 through 15, he says, I have many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. This just reminds us that he's writing with some sense of vulnerability and he's worried about persecution. And so he says, I'll have to save everything else I have for you until later. I find it interesting that Second John, Third John, and the Gospel of John all end in a very similar way. The Gospel of John says, and so many more things happen that we just don't have enough pen and paper to write about. It's like he always had more than he had time to say. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, once more for this wonderful little book, for the heart of a man who knew you so well and wanted so many others to follow you in the same obedience and love that he showed. I pray, Father, we would do that. We hear your word for a reason. Let us consider that carefully in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.